Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. There are competing creation myths regarding American liberty. The Jamestown, Virginia settlers of 1607 have vied with the pilgrims of the Plymouth Colony in New England for dominance in America's self-understanding of its origins. In this presentation, delivered as part of the 2019 Acton Lecture Series, Alan Crippen argues that these narratives have obscured the role of William Penn and his holy experiment of Pennsylvania as the most influential seedbed of American liberty. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thank you, Acton Institute, for inviting me to be here today. I am a fan. I've been a fan of the Institute for years. And I just realized today that you are coming up on year number 30 next year, 29 years. That's amazing and a wonderful milestone to celebrate. Of course, uh, the Acton Institute and the American Bible Society share uh, an interest in exploring the relationship between faith and liberty. And that's why I'm here today. Dan mentioned that um, we've done some programming together in Philadelphia, so I'm glad to be in Western Michigan, and I want to give a special thanks for whoever ordered the, the first day of spring snowfall <laughs> yesterday to welcome me here. So, uh, but I, I want to reciprocate that invitation and invite all of you to come to Philadelphia, the cradle of American liberty. We are building out a $60 million Faith and Liberty Discovery Center right on Independence Mall at Fifth and Market, if you know the city. It's uh, right across the street from the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall and all those iconic sites. And we'd love to have you there, but we want to arrange a snowfall for you. Uh, come come, come and, and enjoy Philadelphia. And if you want to know more about that, I should introduce my colleague. Where is Jane? Jane Jelgerheis? There she is. So Jane is actually based here in Western Michigan and works with American Bible Society. She has some literature about the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center if you want to know more. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm honored to be here today. I want to thank uh, Trey Dimstill, who's not with us, but uh, again, humbled that he would ask me to share a little bit about uh, William Penn. And let me say at the outset that uh, William Penn is not the iconic figure displayed on the Quaker Oats cereal box. So I'm just anticipating that question. Let's just get it out there and settled right now. I do, though, think that he's a, a timely figure and, and one who can hopefully speak into our current cultural moment. Uh, let me say that um, on January 15th of this year, the President of the United States issued a proclamation for Religious Freedom Day. From the civic sanctity of the White House Oval Office, the chief executive encouraged all Americans to celebrate and commemorate religious freedom with the events and activities on the following day, January 16th. His proclamation reads accordingly. On Religious Freedom Day, we celebrate our nation's longstanding commitment to freedom of conscience and the freedom to profess one's own faith. The right to religious freedom is innate to the dignity of every human person, 
and is foundational to the pursuit of truth. The pilgrims who landed at Plymouth shared an experience common to many of America's first settlers. They had fled their home countries to escape religious persecution. Aware of this history, our nation's founding fathers readily understood that a just government must respect the deep yearning for truth and openness to the transcendent that are part of the human spirit. For this reason, from the beginning, our constitutional republic has endeavored to protect a robust understanding of religious freedom. On January 16, 1786, Virginia enacted the Statute for Religious Freedom to protect the right of individual conscience and religious exercise and to prohibit the compulsory support of any church. Authored by Thomas Jefferson, the statute set forth the principle that religious liberty is, is an inherent right and not a gift of the state. Jefferson's statute served as the inspiration and model for the legal architecture of the conscience protections in the First Amendment, drafted by James Madison just a few years later. Close quote. So the president then continues his proclamation by appropriately referencing last October's horrific attack on a Jewish synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He describes the incident as, quote, the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in our nation's history, close quote. He also refers to, quote, other attacks on people of faith and their houses of worship. And then he soberly acknowledges that religious persecution is a reality around the globe, that people are currently intimidated and oppressed by authoritarian dictatorships, terrorist groups, and other intolerant individuals. In the face of domestic and international threats, the president affirmed his continuing American commitment to the principles of freedom of conscience and religious liberty, principles that are at the very heart of the American experience. Now, in the spirit of the president's national encouragement to celebrate and commemorate religious liberty, I would like to take a few minutes this afternoon to revisit our national origins and particularly those persons and events that have bequeathed to Americans and to the world the idea of religious liberty. In his proclamation, the president references the epic story of America's beginning, the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth fleeing persecution in England. It's a moving and compelling narrative and one that has rightly captured the imagination of school children for generations. And this narrative is embedded in American consciousness. Well, I hope it is. It's the story of religious dissidents seeking haven to live according to the dictates of their conscience. It's the story of their perilous passage on the Mayflower and its voyage to the inhospitable shores of Cape Cod. It's the story of the Mayflower Compact and the early experiment in liberal social contract theory predating both Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. It's the story of the stalwart William Bradford leading the fledgling colony through starvation, sickness, and the complicated and precarious relations with the Native Americans. It's the story of the first Thanksgiving feast. 
And this is all great and epic material that has dominated and even commanded America's creation story. As to the Plymouth Pilgrims' contribution to the ideals of American religious liberty, they, however, are not paragons of virtue. Yes, the pilgrims fled England under religious persecution looking for freedom, but they did not envisage their New England as a land of broad religious tolerance, inclusion, and diversity. Nor did their future neighbors, the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay. The pilgrim separatists, and certainly the Puritans, envisioned a religiously homogeneous society, not unlike the England that they had left behind, with the exception that New England society, politics, and economics would be more rigorously reformed in its continuity with biblical principles as they understood them. So there is certainly much to learn and to be inspired about in the Pilgrim story, but there is very little in their story that commends or contributes to American ideals of religious liberty. So now I want you to fast forward to uh, fast forward 166 years to Thomas Jefferson. The Virginian's credentials as an American founder are impeccable. You know that he was a member of the Continental Congress, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, the governor of Virginia, minister to France, US Secretary of State, vice president and later president of the United States. And in his spare time, he founded a university. And as the president's recent proclamation reminds us, he was the author of the 1786 Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, an important and notable precursor of the religious establishment and free exercise clauses of the Constitution's First Amendment in 1791. In fact, Jefferson viewed his authorship of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom as one of the three great accomplishments of his life. When you visit Monticello and see his tombstone there, he lists that among two other accomplishments, the authorship of the Declaration of Independence, and yes, the founding of that particular university, uh, the University of Virginia. From the colony's origin at Jamestown in 1607 to the enactment of the Statute for Religious Freedom in 1786, 179 years later, Virginia's story, however, is hardly an ideal social model of religious liberty. The Old Dominion was characterized by the ancient and familiar model of, European, of, of, of church state establishment, the Church of England, with government mandated attendance at worship services as well as financial support by taxes. Eventually, settlers came to Virginia representing various dissenting Protestant sects, including Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists. These groups experienced legal restrictions on their religious practices. By the mid-18th century, their struggle for religious freedom begins to take shape. James Madison, for example, in witnessing the pathetic sight of Baptist ministers preaching from their jail cells, was steeled in his heart to advocate for disestablishment, disestablishment of his own church, the Church of England. By 1786, public consensus on religious freedom was sufficient to support Jefferson's statute, reaching an important 
milestone for religious liberty in Virginia. And this also is a dramatic story with Herculean actors like Patrick Henry, George Mason, Madison, Jefferson, and others. Jefferson's statute for religious freedom opens with a bold theological, epistemological claim, quote, whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free, close quote. And then that statute concludes with a resolution, quote, that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. Now, these are elegant words, powerful and liberating words indeed. And Jefferson's statute, in effect, severs Virginia from its European church-state establishment moorings. And that is, of course, an important historical departure, to be sure. The moment is, in fact, transitional and opens a new and significant chapter of America's experiment in liberty. And as is apparent by the President's proclamation, Virginia's story of religious freedom has also captured American consciousness and helps to define the nation's ideals of liberty to this day. Now, as compelling and significant as the stories of Massachusetts and Virginia are to the American experiment of liberty, I would like to suggest that there is another story, one that is arguably more important and was of historically greater influence in defining American meaning and identity, especially its ideal of religious liberty. And it's the story of Pennsylvania, and particularly the vision of its founder, William Penn. With apologies to the late Richard Weaver, if Jefferson's ideas have consequences, they also have antecedents. In 1825, and less than a year before his own death, Jefferson described William Penn as, quote, the greatest lawgiver the world has produced, the first in either ancient or modern times who has laid the foundation of government in pure and unadulterated principles of peace, reason, and right, end of quote. This is Jefferson's view of William Penn. Likewise, James Madison, the architect of the First Amendment of the, USS, of the U.S. Constitution, not the USS Constitution, that's a ship, but of the U.S. Constitution, said of William Penn, quote, Pennsylvania may well be proud of such a founder and lawgiver as William Penn, and an obligation be felt by her enlightened citizens to cherish by commemorations of his exalted philanthropy and beneficent institution, their expanding influence on the cause of civil and religious liberty, close quote. So today, on America's Independence Mall in Philadelphia stands a two-story steel and glass structure that was built to house an antique artifact. 
a permanently damaged and inoperable 2,080-pound bronze bell that has become an iconic symbol of American freedom. The Liberty Bell was formerly housed in the Georgian-style tower and steeple of the old Pennsylvania State House, better known today as Independence Hall. Tradition says that the bell pealed at the clarion of independence to the world on July 8, 1776, in calling Philadelphia citizens to attend and hear the public reading of the Continental Congress's Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. Later in American history, the bell was appropriated as the cause celebre symbol of the abolitionist movement to end slavery and its scourge on humanity and American liberty, thus spreading the bell's fame, meaning, and cultural significance. But the bell's history predates the iconography of the United States because it was first Pennsylvania's Liberty Bell. Commissioned in 1751 to commemorate the 50th Jubilee anniversary of Pennsylvania's Constitution, William Penn's Charter of Privileges of 1701, the bell was celebratory of Pennsylvania's freedom and prosperity. At the time, the province was arguably the freest and most liberal democratic government in the world. Pennsylvania's economy was characterized by dynamic growth and its capital of Philadelphia was the English-speaking New World's largest metropolis, an economic powerhouse. Now, I want to put this in perspective. When I say largest metropolis in 1751, that's about 17,000 people. So it's a lot smaller than Grand Rapids. Inscribed on the bell was an appropriate biblical text from Leviticus 25 uh, verse 10, a reference to the Hebrew year of Jubilee, when slaves and prisoners were, be, were to be freed, when debts were to be forgiven, and the mercies of God were everywhere evident. Quote, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof. Close quote. Pennsylvania liberty was proclaimed, and many peoples came to Penn's land of Jubilee, on the edge of Britain's empire. There were waves of them, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, English Baptists, Irish Catholics, Welsh Quakers, German Reformed Lutheran and Anabaptists, Dutch Reformed, can I say that in Western Michigan? Swedish Lutherans, French Huguenot and Catholics, and Spanish, Portuguese, and German Jews all came to Philadelphia. Francis Daniel Pastorius, a German Quaker immigrant, describes his fellow shipboard passengers to Pennsylvania in 1684. Quote, my company on board consisted of many sorts of people. There was a doctor of medicine with his wife and eight children, a French captain, a Dutch cake baker, an apothecary, a glassblower, a mason, a smith, a wheelwright, a cabinet maker, a cooper, a hat maker, a cobbler, a tailor, a gardener, farmers, seamstresses, etc. In all, about 80 persons beside the crew. They were not only different in respect to age, four our oldest women were 60 years of age, and the youngest child 
was 12 weeks. And in respect to their occupations, as I have mentioned, but were also of such different religions and behaviors that I might not unfittingly compare the ship that bore them hither with Noah's Ark. But that they were more unclean than clean, rational animals aboard. In my household, I have those who hold the Roman, to the Lutheran, to the Calvinist, to the Anabaptist, and to the Anglican Church, and only one Quaker. I have already mentioned that my sailing ship was not to be compared to anything but Noah's Ark. Immigrants came to Pennsylvania, to William Penn's colony of religious refuge and opportunity. His charter of privileges had indeed established freedom worth celebrating. In his 1939 biography of King Charles II, the Catholic Anglo-French historian and poet Hilaire Belloc observes the significance of William Penn and his colony of Pennsylvania. It's a long quote, so bear with me. Quote, William Penn received his grant and charter from the fervent goodwill of Charles and James. The grant and charter lie at the root of all later Western expansion of English speech and custom over what was to be called the United States. And he received it from the friendship and sympathy of Charles II and James, Duke of York, who was a special supporter of Penn as the son of an admiral and as one of these nonconformists whom the two royal brothers made it their policy to protect. The reasons that Pennsylvania is thus of highest importance in the story of the English-speaking New World are both moral and geographical. Morally, Pennsylvania founded that system of political and religious neutrality without which the coming expansion would have been impossible. Geographically, the new colony of Pennsylvania was planted as a gate giving entry to the Ohio Valley and thence to the upper Mississippi and beyond. So much emphasis has been laid in our histories upon the New England states, Belloc continues, that the role of Pennsylvania is obscured. Yet a very elementary knowledge of the map is enough to prove to anyone who follows the story, though it be for the first time, that not New England, but Pennsylvania did the trick. The pioneers who gradually extended the influence of the eastern seaboard into the interior and so built up what was to become the United States were of every kind and origin, and among them can be found numerous settlers and migrants from the states of New England. But the door through which all had to pass, the political society which determined the Western movement was not that of New England with its peculiarly Calvinistic traditions, but that of the broad, wise, and just William Penn, the Quaker who founded Pennsylvania and bequeathed his spirit to his followers. End of quote. That is Hilaire Belloc. So who was this broad, wise, and just William Penn, the Quaker who founded Pennsylvania? Pastorius, that German immigrant cited above, said this of William Penn. William Penn is a man who honors God and is honored by him, who loves what is good and is rightly beloved by all good men. End of quote. Wouldn't that be a nice epithet? 
to have on our own markers. Penn was the son of privilege, the firstborn of an English naval hero, Admiral Sir William Penn, born in 1644 during the turbulent years of the English Civil War. Penn was baptized in Anglican and came of age during England's short-lived Puritan Commonwealth, a failed experiment in Christian republicanism. Penn lived in what some historians have called the biblical century, a time when knowledge of the Bible was ubiquitous and when it commanded moral authority for personal as well as public ethics, for private morality as well as public philosophy. And in 1660, Penn matriculated at Christ Church, Oxford. At the time, its dean was the Puritan theologian John Owen. And among the tutors at Christ Church was the young John Locke, whose fame would later rise as the philosopher of the American founding. Owen had defended the right of conscience and supported measures of religious toleration since the 1640s. He was also politically aligned with the Commonwealth, With the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, Owen's influence diminished, and his days were numbered at Oxford. Even so, Penn, young Penn, was drawn to attend Owen's lectures and so influenced to participate in unauthorized, nonconformist worship. Owen was dismissed from Oxford in 1661 for his unwillingness to conform to Anglican orthodoxy, The next year, Penn was discharged from the university without a degree, probably due to his association with John Owen. And so his disappointed father sent him to France for further finishing as a young English gentleman. While in France, Penn made his way to the Protestant Academy at Samur. Its leading light was the renowned Huguenot theologian Moses Amiro, an ironic soul who argued for religious toleration. Scholars believe that during this period of Penn's life, both at Oxford and at Samur in France, Penn was spiritually and intellectually formed by bold theologians grappling with biblical text and seeking to advance a fresh understanding of religious tolerance. Penn's travels on the continent also put him in contact with an English exile of the Commonwealth, the former soldier, member of parliament, and Republican political philosopher, Algernon Sidney. Like Locke, Sidney's writings would later influence the American founders. Penn's friendship with Sidney resulted in collaboration upon Sidney's return to England in 1677, but the friendship fractured later over Sidney's criticism of Penn's constitution for Pennsylvania. And when Penn returned to England, he studied law at Lincoln's Inn in London and acquired sufficient facility in legal argument to later advocate for himself and others in trial courts before English magistrates. In 1667, Admiral Penn sent his son to Ireland to manage the family's significant estate lands. The Admiral would later rue the day. For in Ireland, the young Penn who was well on the pathway to following his father as a military officer, heard Thomas Lowe, a preacher of the Society of Friends, or the Quakers, impressed by Lowe's sincerity, biblical simplicity, and persuasive gifts, Penn became convinced of the Quaker way. 
His conversion, or in his words, quote, convincement, close quote, as he called it, destined him for greatness on both sides of the Atlantic, but not without significant hardships and difficulty, beginning with his father and his mother. From the Admiral's view, Penn's association with the Quakers was a social embarrassment and a career-limiting move for his promising son and heir. The Quakers, however, were elated to have such a fine catch, a member of the gentry class with a high-profile influential family who could now extend their reach and influence into the social and political circles that were otherwise impenetrable. Young Penn wasted no time in his advocacy for the Society of Friends. As, his, uh, as a consequence, he was arrested in Ireland and then later in England on multiple occasions for illegal assembly in violation of the Conventicle Act, a law forbidding the religious assembly of five or more persons outside of Anglican churches. These arrests and subsequent public trials provided welcomed media attention for the Society of Friends and their struggle for religious liberty. It was first in Ireland and then later as a prisoner in London's Newgate that Penn, while yet in his mid-twenties, developed his influential track, The Great Case of Liberty of Conscience, 1670. The Great Case was a full broadside against the Conventicle Act in the style of a legal brief. The Great Case is an erudite expression of Penn's theology and philosophy of religious freedom that combines Protestant and Quaker thought with natural uh, legal and historical reasoning. Penn's Great Case argues for the right of conscience by divine law, natural law, English constitutional law, and history. Throughout his life, the Great Case remained central in Penn's thought, advocacy, and later practical experience of government in British America. In the work, Penn defined liberty of conscience as, quote, not a mere liberty of mind, but the exercise of ourselves in a visible way of worship upon our believing it to be indispensably required at our hands, close quote. For Penn, what is in view is not just freedom of thought, but also freedom for worship and practice, for religious exercise, including the collective rights of freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and freedom of speech. All of these rights, these collective rights, that we know are expressed in the, in the uh, First Amendment, follow from, in Penn's argument, quote, the exercise of ourselves in a visible way of worship, close quote. In Penn's mind, these rights are all dimensions of liberty of conscience. And it is in these collective rights rooted in religious liberty that eventually, of course, find their expression in the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Theologically, Penn argues that religious liberty is ultimately grounded in God's sovereign right to free human worship as creator, king, and judge. That human right for liberty of conscience is derivative of this fundamental principle of divine right. In other words, religious liberty has an ontological theological anchoring in the nature of God and his relationship to humanity. Therefore, 
acts of the state to impose, restrain, and persecute people for conscience sake are actually usurpations of the divine prerogative rights of God, who alone is Lord of the conscience and sole judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Government, he argues, therefore, has no jurisdiction over the conscience. Only God does. Penn understands individual right of private judgment as consequential of God's divine right. Bolstering this theological argument, Penn turns to the authority of Scripture, particularly to Job chapter 32, verse 8. This rather obscure biblical text is central to Penn's argument. Quote, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Close quote. It is perhaps no surprise that the jailed Penn, who was suffering the injustice of religious persecution, would have been reading the book of Job, the classic biblical poem dealing with the perennial question of why the righteous suffer. The passage he cites is located at a critical transition in the poem. The words in view are spoken by Elihu, a key character who testifies as a witness for God and truth in confronting the other characters in the story, who are either confused or completely wrong about the meaning and purpose of suffering, and about God and the nature of justice. So at first, Elihu is deferential to the other characters, but then boldly asserts a theological, anthropological claim as his qualification to speak out. And it is this, the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. In other words, Human understanding is divinely imparted by the inspiration of God. So Penn, in prison, is impressed by this liberating idea that human understanding is God-given. With this biblical text, he reasons, quote, If no man can believe before he understands, and no man can understand before he is inspired of God, then... Humanly imposed punishment for not believing is unreasonable and inhuman. Penn writes, quote, To imagine those barbarous Newgate instruments of clubs, fines, prisons, etc., should be fit arguments to convince the understanding. It is altogether irrational, cruel, and impossible. Force can make a hypocrite. Tis faith grounded upon knowledge and consent that makes a Christian, close quote. Penn's great case continues with the exposition of 11 other biblical texts, which are in his words, quote, the plainest testimonies of divine writ, Holy Scripture, the Bible, right? The plainest testimonies of divine writ that can be, which condemn all force upon conscience, close quote. Passages from the prophet Isaiah, the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John, and various letters of St. Paul are also invoked in his arguments. And in addition to the theological and biblical arguments, Penn makes an adept deployment of natural reasoning and the English legal tradition bolstered by a historical survey of tolerant regimes and rulers whom he describes as, quote, the wisest, greatest, and best states and persons of ancient and modern times, close quote in arguing for liberty of conscience and freedom of religious practice. For more than a decade, 
Penn used and expanded upon the great case in laboring to reform English law and accommodate liberty of conscience and religious practice. Upon his father's death, he inherited a great fortune to deploy in his public advocacy for liberty and in his religious leadership and philanthropy among the Quakers. Frustrated by his lack of success in reforming England, Penn looked to the New World for creating a biblically informed political experiment or demonstration project. During the mid-1670s, Penn was involved as an investor and trustee proprietor, a trustee for the proprietor in the colonization of West Jersey. And although not the principal architect of the endeavor, he played an important role in drafting the West Jersey concessions of 1676, the colony's founding constitution. Among its radically liberal democratic political commitments, was the provision for religious liberty. That no men, nor number of men upon earth, hath power or authority to rule over men's consciences in religious matters. Therefore, no person or persons shall be anyways, upon any pretext whatsoever, called in question, or in the least punished or hurt, either in person, estate, or privilege, for the sake of his opinion, judgment, faith, or worship towards God in matters of religion." Close quote. The colony of West Jersey protected religious liberty from its beginning through the influence of William Penn in part. It was, however, Pennsylvania that afforded Penn his greatest opportunity to apply his biblically informed political theory and seed a new nation. In 1681, Penn secured Pennsylvania's charter from Charles II as payment for a debt that the crown had owed his father, a condition, a, a condition for the 50,000 square mile land grant that was the new province to be named for the late admiral and friend of the king. In a letter to James Harrison, Penn expressed his intentions for the track, which also included the lower three counties, what we know as Delaware. He said, quote, I have so obtained it, that is Pennsylvania, and desire that I may not be unworthy of his love, but to do that which may answer his kind providence and serve his truth and people, that an example may be set up to the nations. There may be room there, though not here in England, for such a holy experiment. With the King's Charter, Penn had the means and location to put his political theology and philosophy of religious liberty into practice. By May of the following year, the proprietor had crafted a frame of government or constitution for his new colony. Its preface reads like a theological discourse, yea, even a sermon, can I say, on a social and political theory. Penn viewed government as an extension and working out of biblical faith. He writes, so that government seems to me a part of religion itself, a filing sacred in its institution and end. For if it does not directly remove the cause, it crushes the effects of evil. But that is only to evildoers, government itself being otherwise as capable of kindness, goodness, and charity as a more private society, close quote. And in fostering his vision for a government, quote, capable of kindness, goodness, and charity, the proprietor made the following provision for religious liberty, that all persons living in this province 
who confess and acknowledge the one almighty and eternal God to be the creator, upholder, and ruler of the world, and that hold themselves obliged in conscience to live peaceably and justly in civil society shall in no ways be molested or prejudiced for their religious persuasion or practice in matters of faith and worship, nor shall they be compelled at any time to frequent or maintain any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever. Penn's 1682 frame of government was the first in a succession of Pennsylvania's experimental constitutions culminating in the 1701 Charter of Privileges. And like every constitution before it, it also made provision for religious liberty. But went one step further in securing liberty for Pennsylvanians uh, and, and their posterity into the future. Under his slate roof residence on 2nd Street in Philadelphia and on the eve of his departure for what would be his last visit to Pennsylvania, the proprietor wrote this. But because the happiness of mankind depends so much upon the enjoying of liberty of their consciences, as aforesaid, I do hereby solemnly declare, promise, and grant for me, my heirs and assigns, that the first article of this charter relating to liberty of conscience and every part of the clause therein, according to the true intent and meaning thereof, shall be kept and remain without any alteration inviolably for ever, close quote. The first articulated privilege in Penn's Charter of Privileges was that of religious liberty, specifically described as the people's, quote, freedom of their consciences as to their religious profession and worship, close quote. Pennsylvania's first liberty was religious liberty. And as if to underscore that point, Later, and very near the end of the Charter of Privileges, Penn revisits this key first privilege in a solemn declaration to forever safeguard Pennsylvania's religious liberty from alteration and change. Penn made religious liberty irrevocable, fundamental law in the province. From the institution of the Charter of Privileges in 1701 until it was suspended, by the world-changing events of July 1776, 75 years later, the Charter of Privileges secured religious liberty for Pennsylvanians to the envy of a watching world. On April 1, 1774, two years before the birth of the United States, the 23-year-old Virginian, James Madison, wrote to his lifelong friend, William Bradford of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, they had first met as fellow students at the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, and trained under the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon for future leadership in public service. Both, of course, would become patriots in the cause of liberty. Madison would rise in the Congress and ultimately become president. Bradford would become President George Washington's Attorney General and the son-in-law of Congressman Elias Boudinot future founder and president of American Bible Society. How about that? In their young 20s, like William Penn before them, these two young men were eager to change the world. Madison writes to Bradford at Philadelphia's coffee house at 2nd and High Street. That was not, for the record, a Starbucks coffee house, the London coffee house. He writes, quote, that liberal, Catholic, and equitable way of thinking as to the rights of conscience, which is one of the characteristics of a free people 
and so strongly marks the people of your province is but little known among the zealous adherents to our hierarchy in Virginia. You are happy in dwelling in a land where those inestimable privileges are fully enjoyed and public has long felt the good effects of their religious as well as civil liberty. Foreigners have been encouraged to settle among you. Industry and virtue have been promoted by mutual emulation and mutual inspection. Commerce and the arts have flourished. And I cannot help attributing those continual exertions of genius, which appear among you to the inspiration of liberty and that love of fame and knowledge, which always accompany it. Religious bondage shackles and debilitates the mind and unfits it for every noble enterprise, every expanded prospect. How far this is the case with Virginia will, be more clearly, will more clearly appear when the ensuing trial is made, close quote. Penn's Pennsylvania provided the successful and prosperous example of a social experiment in religious freedom that was nearly a century old. Penn's holy experiment was the envy of James Madison, who wanted to see the prospect and promise of religious liberty in his native Virginia. As we know, he and Jefferson were to be successful in achieving religious liberty in Virginia 105 years after William Penn's experiment in Pennsylvania. But not only in Virginia. Madison would also lead efforts in the Federal Congress to craft the Bill of Rights to the Constitution and frame the religion clauses of the First Amendment. In Penn's Philadelphia, the Congress and all of America celebrated ratification of the Bill of Rights in 1791. 110 years after the founding of Pennsylvania, America too would, become, would enjoy Pennsylvania's first liberty and later claim her liberty bell. Penn had indeed seated a new nation with his holy experiment. William Penn may very well be the unsung hero in America's experiment of liberty. There is an epilogue. On November 28, 1984, the President of the United States issued Proclamation 5284, making William Penn and his wife Hannah honorary citizens of the United States. To date, only one other British subject shares that distinguished honor, Sir Winston Churchill. From the civic sanctity of the White House Oval Office, President Ronald Wilson Reagan proclaimed, quote, in the history of this nation, there has been a small number of men and women whose contributions to its traditions of freedom, justice, and individual rights have accorded them a special place of honor in our hearts and minds, and to whom all Americans owe a lasting debt. Among them, are the men and women who founded the 13 colonies that became the United States of America. William Penn, as a British citizen, founded the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in order to carry out an experiment based upon representative government, public education without regard to race, creed, sex, or ability to pay, and the substitution of workhouses for prisons. He had a Quaker's deep faith in divine guidance. And as the leader of a new colony, he worked to protect the rights of personal conscience and freedom of religion. The principles of religious freedom he espoused helped to lay the groundwork for the First Amendment of our Constitution. 
So perhaps William Penn is not the unsung hero of America's experiment in liberty after all. Thank you very much. We have just a few minutes for questions and answer. If you raise your hand, we'll bring a mic to you. Somehow I probably missed this, but you did say, I think, that William Penn actually never lived in North America. He visited twice and spent a total of about three years here. Uh, built a home on the, uh, in what is now Bucks County on the Delaware River. He'd uh, always intended to settle here, but business called him back really to save the colony. It, it's, a, it's a pretty dramatic story. Um, he wasn't a particularly good businessman. He hired a lot of wrong people and had all kinds of opposition. Um, this story, by the way, is detailed in Andrew Murphy's recent uh, biography of William Penn, which uh, Oxford University Press, I highly recommend it. And I think when you, when you work through that biography, uh, you'll gain an even deeper appreciation for why William Penn, for instance, might write the spiritual classic, No Cross, No Crown, because his life was characterized by following the way of the cross. So he was here in the early, um, in Pennsylvania, that is, in the early 1680s, and then returned in the late, um, well, 1700. Do, do you suppose maybe that's why he, he just gets a footnote, whereas all these other individuals are just talked about all the time? It's a, it's a great question. Um, I think he gets a footnote in some ways, at least in our modern day, because he's so, um, he's so Bible-saturated, right? So moderns, I think, have a hard time appreciating that and reading through that, um, and I, I commend, the great case, uh, the great case of religious, of liberty of conscience, that is, the great case of liberty of conscience is, it's a 30-page document. It's fairly accessible. And, I, you know, I, when I first read it, I was very much impressed with how grounded he is in theology and, and scripture. And, of course, I mentioned that he lived in the biblical century. Everybody was grounded in theology and scripture in those days. So I think, um, particularly for moderns who are increasingly illiterate about scripture, I mean, they don't even know the stories, let alone the principles, I think he's uh, less, accessible, uh, uh, less accessible. So that's one reason. I think the other reason is he's sort of been relegated to uh, Quakerism. And Quakerism, as you know, is a, it's a Christian sect, a small Christian sect uh, that has an international presence um, there's still lots of Quakers in Philadelphia, by the way. But I think the majority of Christian people really don't know what to make of the Quakers, right? Are they particularly orthodox? And, and so um, I think for that reason, a lot of his uh, writings, both his religious writings, his theological writings, as well as his political writings, are um, less appreciated. Uh, Penn is a, uh, think about this, Penn is a political theorist. John Locke was a political theorist. Algernon Sidney was a political theorist. These are all cont contemporaries. But unlike Locke, who had some hand, I guess, in writing the Carolina Constitution, and unlike Algernon Sidney, Penn also was a political practitioner. So he had to take his theories and actually put them into practice 
in Pennsylvania, uh, which was not easy. So I, I think it's, um, uh, I, I think we're well served to, to, to learn a little bit more about William Penn. Particularly, particularly for Christian people who uh, are interested in exploring the relationship of faith and liberty. And which is what we share, obviously, with the Acton Institute, this interest in sharing, um, that is the Bible Society, sharing the relationship of faith and liberty. For, for those of us who are interested in exploring the religious principles related to liberty, William Penn is a must. He's a must read. Uh, I have a question. Yes, sir. Perhaps you mentioned it in your uh, speech. Could you elucidate for us the impact that, I think it, you said that uh, it was Madison was the, the author of the First Amendment? Yes. Uh, the impact of uh, Penn's writings on, on uh, Madison and that right. uh, very important piece. Yeah, thank, thank you for asking. Um, you know, I, at, the, at the beginning, there was a, a quote of uh, Madison in, in 1825. So again, he's an old man. Um, he was invited to attend a commemoration of William Penn in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, so he's writing to his correspondent, and, and that's where he says that, you know, Pennsylvanians should indeed honor this man. But I think, you know, what I, uh, near the end of the, of the lecture, when I was talking about Penn's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Madison's friendship with William Bradford, I mean, these guys were college chums. Uh, they, interestingly, both wrestled with going into the ministry, and they both decided to go into to law, what would the world have looked like if James Madison had become a minister and William Bradford as well, uh, rather than a lawyer? I don't know. That's a, someone needs to write that alternative history. Um, but I think uh, Madison, again, friend of, of Bradford, uh, he knew Pennsylvania. And, and what, what's, amazing, what's amazing, I think, about that quote is he's 23 years old. And he sees Pennsylvania as a, as a living experiment. He, he knows that these, these men knew history. <laughs> they were classically educated. They knew, uh, they knew the colonial history and the ancient history. So, so Penn, Penn was a revered uh, figure. And Pennsylvania, a, a, a Pens Pennsylvania I, I don't want to be heard as saying Pennsylvania is the only experiment in religious liberty. There are other important experiments. Rhode Island is a very important experiment in religious liberty. Uh, there's a, uh, Maryland, the Carolinas. Uh, I mentioned New Jersey, which Penn was involved in. Delaware, of course, is part of Pennsylvania, so that's involved. New York. Uh, so there were various experiments of religious liberty. Um, Pennsylvania was the biggest and the most successful in, attract, in attracting an immigrant community. And so I think, um, you know, when, when the members of the Continental Congress assembled, uh, throughout the course of the war, right, they see religious liberty working in Pennsylvania. Uh, when you come to Philadelphia, um, I'm happy to give you a walking tour. And we'll walk the streets in the alleys of Pennsylvania, um, Philadelphia rather, and it, it will become pretty obvious that this is a very religiously diverse place in the 18th century. What other city has, I mean a few cities have that, but, um, uh, so, so the founders are working in this city, this very cosmopolitan, uh, free and economically prosperous city. It's probably a whole other lecture on religious liberty and, and economics regarding Pennsylvania. Um, 
And certainly by the time the Constitutional Convention has happened, and, and as, 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 the, as the members of Congress are wrestling with the First Amendment, um, they have an experiment to look at. They're, they're not just taking a guess. We, we you know, hope that disestablishment and free exercise will work. Um, and, and I was very much impressed that Penn in that, that great case of liberty of conscience uh, identified the further collective rights of you know, freedom of the press, freedom to assembly, freedom of speech. He connected these, as did the crafters of the First Amendment, to, to the first liberty, religious liberty. It's an important, important point. Thank you for asking. Okay, that concludes our lecture for t today. Please give uh, Dr. Crippen another hand. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.